and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. Joined this week uh, by uh, one of your favorite co-hosts, Jaroslawski, who is uh, stepping uh, in to help us out to fill the gaps here on uh, this week's podcast. This is episode 121 on June 29th, 2023. And Yal, of course, also uh, one of the two hosts of Consumer Choice Radio, which you can listen to on the radio, depending on where you're based in the US uh, or Canada. But of course, find on all uh, the favorite podcasting platforms, including Podcasting 2.0, which Yal is pretty sure uh, happy that I'm pointing out right here. Uh, so Yal, how's, uh, how's everything going in Vienna? Uh, things are good. We had a sweltering heat, but uh, had a very good weekend going across the city and um, biking around and enjoying all the infrastructure that I could. I'm a good little European. Very much so. It's very different to uh, some of the major cities up in North America, all the cycling lanes over in Vienna, and you're using the tram. I've seen you uh, do that as well. Must be, uh, are those air-conditioned, by the way, uh, the trams in Vienna? Uh, I, trams are not. The, um, the Uber, and so the Metro, actually is air-conditioned, but I have gave up on air-conditioning many years ago. I don't think I've had it now for way over a decade. Yeah, whenever I go to whenever I go to the US, I always pack an extra sweater even in the summer just for the AC indoors. But we can talk about that uh, uh, eventually uh, on the sustainability perspective and all the energy use that brings with it. But I want to talk about uh, two different things, uh, and I want to get us started off first on uh, the news out of the Netherlands. Uh, so this is the uh, uh, the uh, Dutch government, which is trying to crack down on all them foreigners. They're not very happy with all the foreigners over in the Netherlands studying uh, and then leaving the country right after. So uh, one of the ministers in the Dutch government has been complaining that uh, too many students in the Netherlands uh, come from abroad. They study in English. They don't integrate into the culture. And then they leave the country right afterwards with all their skills. And as a result of that, the government uh, is considering... Uh, to uh, to enforce a rule that tries to prioritize the use of the Dutch language uh, in uh, in those studies. Uh, that would mean that most of the bachelor's degrees that you can study for in the Netherlands uh, will in future require you to speak Dutch. And of course, that won't be an option for people just trying to stay three or maybe up to up to five years in the Netherlands. Um, one of the other reasons, and we can get into that as well, is that the complaints have been launched by a lot of the residents of major student cities that the rent is just too high and they are blaming the students uh, that are um, swarming the cities and all the student accommodation is driving up the prices. So first of all, uh, Jal, you are someone who did study uh, in Europe in English. Uh, are you responsible for all of our rents being too high and uh, you ultimately not integrating? Oh boy, I'd look at the uh, housing policies of these uh, places first before I'd start to blame uh, me who just came to study. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's an interesting um, conundrum. I would say it's it's rather a good thing. Uh, I um, you can't really fault me for once again quoting uh, my favorite Austrian author Stefan Zweig, um, who wrote a a treatise, uh, you know, way over a hundred years ago now speaking about the need to unify European culture by offering courses and abilities for students to go to other countries, cities, and study. Uh, and of course, that would come with some kind of common language or some way to practice. Uh, so I do th see it as a very good thing. That's why Erasmus is a, it's a very interesting concept uh, that's obviously more temporary. Uh, but when it comes to the long-term study, I mean, it, it will depend on the city, it will depend on the country. There's a lot of uh, universities I know in the Netherlands. Um, I even looked at, uh, I think, Honegen, 
uh, university as well. It was, I think it was number two on my list. Uh, so I was, I was thinking about it, but uh, ultimately the allure of uh, Austria called me a bit harder. Uh, I, I think there's Gas a lot... capital of the Netherlands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions that are brought up when you talk about international students. Um, I would say the only kind of similar scenario that I could see is either in Australia or in Canada, where you do have a large amount of international students. I'd say the major difference, though, is that those are usually uh, private or public institutions that will charge much higher for international students. So in Canada specifically, uh, whereas I was paying 2000 Canadian dollars a semester, you'd had foreign students who were paying 30000 sometimes. And for the universities themselves or for the, the government that might run it, that's actually seen as a good thing. Um, but I can't speak to the, to the Netherlands. I would assume they, it, they do have a bit higher tuition. It's not totally free tuition, as far as I'm right. So, so the way I understand it is that you are not allowed to charge EU citizens a different rate. However, you can uh, subsidize your local students. Uh, okay, yeah. So and, that's and what the French do, for instance. So then this it's not an economic question, though, because uh, 72% of most of the international students in the Netherlands, I just looked it up, <laughs> are, are from European countries. So that would assume that they are paying the same rate. So it's not economics. Uh, this does seem primarily cultural. And it's interesting for the Netherlands, because in the Netherlands, you always um, viewed it as some kind of a, a different country when it came to culture, right? It was a place that, yes, it was very small, but it had its own might in terms of it, it, its culture. You know, it was not afraid of uh, to have the English language or the French language or, or whatever it might be. But I, yeah, I'm not sure um, where to go with this in terms of how I, I would react it, I think it's a good thing to have different languages be present. And it's just a fact. English, for many academic topics, is the lingua franca, particularly the sciences. So that to think that everything would have to be in Dutch, uh, that just seems like a, a bit of a culturally protectionist move that I, I don't think I'd be a fan of. And I'm not even sure that in certain fields of study, uh, all the vocabulary is necessarily as commonly known uh, in the Dutch language. Uh, I think what you said about the Netherlands being um, more open-minded, uh, I think this is a common misapprehension. The, 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 the Netherlands does have a significant um, anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, you have in the Netherlands what people know when they visit the country is, you know, you go to the big cities, you might go, well, you definitely go into Amsterdam, you, you, you will visit uh, The Hague maybe in Rotterdam. Um, but there is uh, what they even call a Bible Belt. So it's like a sort of like a U-shape um, that is a significant part of the country uh, that is not only uh, quite religiously inspired, but also not a big fan of foreigners and uh, those make up a significant voting block that the uh, government uh, coalition uh, uh, um, the ruling one of the ruling parties the VVD of Prime Minister Mark Ritter has been trying to uh, to corner for themselves because there's a lot of competition on the political spectrum uh, for the Dutch parties uh, to uh, to stigmatize against people from abroad um, that uh, on top of it uh, is the uh, is the the real estate market as well, uh, and then yeah, it's 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 a cultural it's a cultural thing. Dutch people are known uh, for speaking uh, English uh, fairly well. Uh, you will even meet people in the, in their well into their seventies that will speak very fluent English. That is the result of uh, Dutch TV uh, showing movies uh, only with uh, subtitles uh, in Dutch, so those are not uh, usually uh, dubbed. And that has a, has, a, has a very positive impact on top of the fact that the Dutch language is 
closer to, to the English language than other European languages might be. Um, but ultimately, what this will do, in my view as well, is that it will backfire because there's actually examples from uh, Denmark, where Denmark implemented this a, a couple of years ago, um, and the, the universities are now coming out and saying this is a very worrying, uh, very um, big decline in international students signing up. Uh, and as a result of that, I mean, if you if you are worried about uh, students um, staying in the country, um, you, you I mean, you, you you sort of educate that talent. You want them to stay in the country and provide value. Um, but one of the prerequisites for you being able to do that is for them to come to your country in the first place. The question should rather be like, how do we incentivize the students to stay after they finish studying and and you know there's different mechanisms to do that some european countries provide significant tax breaks portugal is one of them uh, to try and incentivize young people to move to the country and provide value um but if you just tell them now you got to learn dutch well then definitely you're not keeping them uh, unless you're getting people that are uh, significantly enthralled by the uh, the sound of the dutch language which i'm sure is uh, hard to do for some people yeah and i think you you add to this What's kind of fascinating here is if, let's say, we wanted to integrate those students, you know, could the Netherlands do it? Do they have enough of a, a cultural exchange or interchange so that myself, if I were to move there, would I be able to integrate? What does integration mean today anyway? <laughs> uh, particularly using the Internet and, you know, we have these physical boundaries of these countries. We have the Schengen area where people are able to move. We have the ability to actually get services sometimes in these other languages. Uh, you know, the reaction in, in my native Quebec is, is a bit different there. It's about protecting language from the, the influence of English. And there's a lot of rules on uh, not just government services, but also on signs, um, also on the number of visas given to students who would come study in English versus French. I mean, you definitely have that. Uh, but I think, you know, it's about a competitive nature of a country, too. Because, yeah, it is true. Maybe you'll have a, a huge swath of uh, these students who will leave, but they'll still have been inculcated a little bit in the Dutch system. You know, they will have some kind of soft spot. And, and you know, it's always like you always find out some like dictator 30 years, you know, 30 years ago was hanging out in Switzerland or <laughs> like Xi Jinping studied in Iowa. You had a North Korean leader was... Where was he hanging out? He was in Switzerland at some boarding school. So there's always like something there that you you think will will help shape minds. Uh, perhaps it's working to the opposite in some of these areas. Uh, but I'm also thinking of, uh, let's say, between Germany and Austria. There's a lot of German medical students who come study in Austria because uh, from what I hear, it is much cheaper. And also, apparently, it's a bit easier to get in. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that rumor is true. And, and, you know, let's say you have 100 of those German medical students. If you have 50 who stay, that's still a net positive for Austria. Then we have more medical professionals. Uh, there's already a dearth of medical professionals here, but it's something that adds to the mix. It's not a calculation that you have when you look at your population demographics and statistics. You know, hey, we have 5 million people in our country, uh, but somehow we were able to garner up, you know, 100,000 doctors because people came and studied from abroad. I think that's something that... Uh, the Netherlands has to look at, and the Dutch have to be more cognizant of too. We have to think about workforce training. We have to think about what is the level of education that these people have. Um, overall, it's a very good thing, but it's um, it's very difficult to tell because then you're dealing with culture, you're dealing with politics, dealing with language. Um, not being a Dutch speaker myself, I couldn't tell you how to run it, but uh, 
Danke, Welt. It's it's definitely one of the one of the harder ones to learn, especially in the north of the Netherlands, where you have that uh, uh, famous uh, sound that you have to do. In the south of the Netherlands, uh, that is actually not a thing that they they use. Uh, so it's definitely a tough language, and ultimately, it's it's a lot about incentives. How do you keep people in? I've heard the story before that German medical students um, often. Um, in order to complete their their studies, they have to do an internship, and uh, a popular destination is uh, Switzerland because the Swiss actually pay uh, the uh, the interns fairly. And the reason for that is not necessarily because those interns are the best substitute doctors, but because the Swiss know that now the Germans have successfully educated very high level medical students, and if you uh, if if you pay them during the internship, they're likely to come to Switzerland, and then it's a very easy call to get them to stay. Uh, so Germany actually faces a problem problem of a lot of medical students leaving uh, after they completed their very expensive studies that the German government uh, subsidized uh, and then ending up working in Switzerland. So uh, well, it's cheaper taxes me, than Austria. So I, I could see that being the case. <laughs> and, 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 that, and that helps that helps as well. Uh, and I think this is also one of the factors. It's good that you mention it because, I mean, what is the what is the the, the project here? Is I, I look at I look at you know both freelancers and employees in the Netherlands pay 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 about half of their income in taxes, which is probably another great reason to stay. Uh, if uh, if let's say you are originally from Malta and you go uh, you go study in the Netherlands, it might be might be a nice place to study, but then you look at the the taxes you will have to pay, and that might not necessarily be too enticing. Uh, I think it's a lot. Um, I think that there's there's a lot of wrong conclusions being made here. It seems that the minister is walking back some of the statements uh, because the biggest uh, adversaries in this fight in the Netherlands uh, is actually the universities uh, that fear that uh, uh, large parts of their faculty could simply not exist because some even of their teaching staff uh, is unable to speak Dutch. Uh, and a lot of those students that are completing their master's or uh, doing a PhD are teaching at those universities as well. Um, and uh, they might have to downsize significantly. Uh, anything else you want to add about this, uh, Yal, or should we move on? I think yeah, and every country should be looking to attract minds to their country to study and figuring out ways to, to make them stay. I think uh, the United States does this very well. Canada does it very well. There is an advantage to doing it. If you're not able to, and you can't integrate people via immigration because your system is uh, chaotic or sclerotic, um, probably the education system is a good way that you can attract very good, bright minds that could um, help your future. So it's a good thing. Let's uh, let's give some hope there for the Dutch. Absolutely, and they uh, they do need it. In any case, uh, let's talk about another topic, which is uh, social media platforms. Big tech companies uh, constantly in uh, the crosshairs of the of the European Commission, and we have a uh, European uh, Commissioner Thierry Breton. Um, who is uh, the, uh, the the EU commissioner in charge of these files of how to regulate big tech companies, uh, including moderation rules. And uh, uh, Thierry Breton is of the opinion that Twitter is fairly unreliable when it comes to complying with EU rules. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, the CEO of Twitter, has previously assured that, um, the, that Twitter wants to comply with all the EU's moderation tools. But of course, um, his uh, position on um, what should and should not be allowed on the platform has been uh, has been rather volatile and sometimes ambiguous. 
So the European Union uh, is uh, trying to make a stance here and saying even though you are a big U.S. tech firm, you still will have to comply with our our rules. This is uh, not just an issue in Europe. Other countries as well are trying to make rules on you know either you need to have you need to have some sort of a physical presence in our country in order to operate here. I know Turkey uh, has done that, and which is why I mean Wikipedia um, was uh, was not available in Turkey for the the good part of the of the the previous uh, ten years. Um, and and the EU now really trying to put its foot down on those big tech companies. Uh, Yal, you're probably on both sides of the issue here because you live in Europe, you've lived in the US uh, previously. Um, is this just uh, the Europeans trying to, uh, uh, being salty about not having tech firms in, uh, on the continent? Well, before we go to the saltiness of uh, the European institutions, I think it's worth uh, here, you know, for a moment on the consumer podcast to actually go into the background of Mr. Thierry Breton. Uh, do you know much about him apart from um, his current role or, or his time as a minister in France? Uh, I mean, ministers in France, usually the president and the prime minister decide everything. So I don't pay an awful lot of attention to Thierry Breton. Okay. Like me. All right. Well, let's let's go through a little back because it's actually fairly fascinating. Uh, I have, um, every time I see um, Mr. Breton speak, I tend to have a knee-jerk reaction as someone who's in favor of innovation and love to see all kinds of tech companies that are being successful. Uh, it just happens that many of them are based in the United States, and it seems that the European Union is crafting their rules to try to attack them or restrict them in some way. So I figured uh, Mr. Breton was just a run-of-the-mill bureaucrat uh, for many years. Um, actually not. He's pr a pretty seasoned business executive after I kind of researched it, and it seems he's been part and parcel of um, particularly state companies in France. Um, so state-owned companies seem to be Mr. Breton's uh, forte, and he was a CEO of uh, Thompson, uh, Thompson Multimedia of France Telecom, which owns uh, Orange. Uh, I mean, he's someone who's actually been banging around for a while and apparently has had a good amount of commercial success, uh, particularly in telecom, which is very interesting and fascinating that uh, now after a stint, uh, he was also a minister of finance. Um, there in, in the French government, uh, he's sort of a center-right political uh, internationalist, you would assume. And I think what what makes what's so fascinating about that is today he is leading the charge for attempting to regulate tech companies, uh, specifically those that happen to be based in the United States. Uh, so he made a trip to San Francisco last week, and this is a big deal. He had uh, big meetings. Apparently, he met with uh, Elon Musk. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Meta, he met with the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, and the CEO of Qualcomm. Uh, he also uh, cut the ribbon, as it were, on the brand new EU office in San Francisco. And all of this is, is trying to essentially lay some claim to the 25th of August deadline, whereby the Digital Services Act comes into being. So this is. Um, a big piece of legislation. It's fairly complex, but what it does is it lines out large tech companies and tries to say, these are the rules you have to follow. Users have certain rights. We have to protect minors. There needs to be much more content moderation. Ding, 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 important point. And there has to be a lot more transparency and accountability. So what's very interesting about this is the Digital Services Act has a classification and it has 17 what they call very large online platforms bill, 
these are the companies that are targeted by Digital Services Act, uh, the 17 of the very large online platforms. Um, can you guess how many of these are um, European companies? Well, I'm guessing not too many. Um, I, I was thinking I was thinking about this earlier. I, I, if I had to guess maybe two or three uh, to, to try and be pessimistic about it. So there are 17 on the list, Bill, and one is based in Europe. And you, oh, I don't know if you would that guess Spotify? that company. No, nope, not Spotify. I wouldn't know. I'm actually it's awaiting probably... a package right now, but it'd be from Zalando, the fashion oh, oh, online retailer. Know. Are they? Where are they from? Uh, the German company. Oh, okay. Good for so, them. So why all this is fascinating is uh, particularly when it comes to AI, which is something that's very new, very here. Um, Thierry Breton has spoken essentially for Europeans and saying, look, we're going to get the regulation first. We're going to do it right, quote unquote, and it's going to draw companies in. And um, he had a post on Twitter, I believe it was last week, stating, oh, yeah, yeah, Sam Altman has said uh, he's going to make his second headquarters in France. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, I, I think this is um, it's another attempt to try to limit the power of some of these institutions. I think there is a lot of just governmental power that would like to have a bit more influence into how some of these platforms or companies are run. Uh, there are certain ways that you can do it. It is now the, the stage of the supranational institution, the European Union, that's trying to kind of take its stab at it. Uh, I don't like certain things in the Digital Services Act, particularly the content moderation. Uh, the American problem usually is that we have you know a lot of free speech and we want to be sure that you know platforms adhere to that and we have something called section 230 of the communications decency act in the united states which means that if you use any platform uh, the platform itself they are not liable for anything that you might say you might be liable yourself but if you make a comment on a website you know whatever on your social media network the social media network itself will not be held liable for any criminal activity or anything else uh, you as an individual could be, um, the Digital Services Act kind of gives much more stipulation that the platforms need to censor people a lot more in order to avoid liability. So I do see kind of much more content moderation that will be coming up. Uh, sorry for a very long segment on this bill, but uh, yeah, this is happening in real time. It was a big showing of the uh, internal market commissioner, Thierry Breton, to go over to San Francisco. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, the population numbers, but a lot of people are fleeing San Francisco. He probably should have gone to Miami or something, <laughs> but uh, there we go. That's uh, the EU, um, you know, attempting to, to use its influence a bit in the uh, Silicon Valley. Well, and so this is something I, I'm curious about. And I'll make you go even longer uh, about, through this question, which is that how how will they work on the compatibility of those of those rules uh, let's say you have uh, uh, let's say i travel to new york and while i'm in new york i tweet uh, something that would be considered illicit content uh, under the digital services act um what what are the rules here if the if the european union says this is illicit content our under our rules um but I was acting uh, on American soil. Uh, will content have to be removed that would be allowed under U.S.? Are, are we essentially going to the lowest common denominator of what is acceptable speech on those platforms? I think what's going to happen is very much what's already happened with many of these platforms uh, after the 2016 U.S. election, 
is that you had essentially an overdrive of attempting to content moderate, police. Um, in tech policy terms, we call this process jawboning. So jawboning is this idea that, you know, the government cannot come out in the U.S. at least and say, hey, those people are not allowed to say that. What they can do, though, is drag members of social media networks, you know, before Congress or to some meeting or make some threats in the media about future legislation. And that changes the behavior of private companies. And I think that's what has happened for a long time. And I think this will just go into overdrive now that you have this Digital Services Act. I mean, really, realistically, a lot of the things that the DSA looks for are things that most platforms have already done voluntarily. Uh, particularly when it comes to misinformation, disinformation, illegal content, you know, anything terroristic wise or any kind of sexual abuse online, these things related to children, um, they make a, a bit of a bigger stipulation here that targeted advertising towards children is no longer legal. And again, it's very difficult to figure out how they're going to police that. I've absolutely no idea, but you know, they need to label everything. That's a big thing that uh, Breton said in his open AI meeting is, you know, we want to have a label when we know that something is AI. Well, I don't, I don't know how they're going to police that. I'll just put in the AI, do not include label or include fake label. You know, there's always something that you could do there. Uh, you know, it's a way that the, they're trying to change the risk calculus. I don't view this as a consumer and user of many of these online services. I don't think things will get better. I think we're going to gatekeep a lot of this. So at least for me, I'm going to start pointing my VPN elsewhere. I think many different European consumers who don't know about that might stop using certain platforms. And it will, the intended effect will not be that people are safer online. People will feel more limited online. If you thought that the cookie pop-ups were annoying, I can't even tell you what the next iteration will be. Um, it'll be a couple of months again before we see all of this come into play. But we are going to see many more terms and conditions, many more restrictions on what you can post, many more restrictions that actually require you to show your ID and do your real name. You know, for Facebook, that was the big thing that they changed. And really the only other platform that's gone that next level is with Twitter to get the blue check. Uh, but I can only imagine what is that going to mean for some of these other online platforms? You know, every time you buy an iPhone, we need to say that ID. Every time you have this, you need to show an ID. I, I think there are many different impacts that will make it a bit harder for consumers. I'm a bit pessimistic. I'd love to, uh, Bill, for you to invite someone else on who might have more hope in the DSA in the future of tech innovation. But uh, for me, at least, I'm, I'm feeling a bit down about it. And I mean, the, the question ultimately, as we get towards the end uh, of this conversation, is sort of what is the breaking point for uh, some of those companies? Because if there's a, um, let's say, if, if, the, if the government of Myanmar says, uh, well, you are not allowed to say this niche thing or that could be interpreted as criticism of the government, you are not allowed to do that, Twitter, you cannot show the, that type of content, uh, Twitter can uh, supposedly comfortably say the market of Myanmar is n not significant enough of a market for us to having to comply to the rules, uh, then we simply, you know, then they'll have to ban us. Twitter would have to be censored in Myanmar. Uh, the European Union is a very different size market. It's a market larger uh, on population than the United States uh, and, and therefore significant. And I think that's also what, what Thierry Breton is definitely playing into um, with those regulations. So, so, do you think there are no-goes for those platforms or will whatever Brussels decide ultimately be the rule on Twitter? 
well, it depends how many of them have a backbone, uh, how many of them are willing to stand up, and how many of them will do much like Meta or Google has done in other places and just shut off various services because they don't want to deal with this. I mean, it's the same with many American news websites, newspapers block their content to EU IP addresses because they don't want to have to comply with GDPR. Um, so we might have some, and again, this is all uh, sort of geofencing the internet, which I think is, is very dangerous. I don't like this aspect. It's against the spirit of what the internet was created for, because now we have, uh, this represents more government inter intervention into how digital services online are run. And there are some European rules on this stuff. That's great. And they do allow for innovation and competition. But this just puts targets on all the large American tech companies, let's be honest, <laughs> and says, hey, here are rules if you want to talk to our customers or our citizens here on this continental block. Well, we'll have a product here in Europe from this company, but it's going to be a crappy alternative to whatever they might have in Singapore or the US or Canada. And I think that's what we're going to kind of constantly be dealing with. And we only have the political leaders who are pretending to speak in our name to blame. And the thing is, is we have all these rules set by the EU. You know, what, what happens if there's a huge shift in the European politics and all of a sudden it's all far right parties and then they have control of how in moderation of uh, content will be run. Once we've given a block like the EU this power, uh, we know it'll be abused just on whose behalf and against whom. That's the next question. Uh, maybe the Dutch government will decide that you'll have to tweet in Dutch if you're using it uh, based out of a but, uh, based out of a Dutch city. Uh, who knows? Uh, that is that is definitely definitely the risk of, um, uh, of of a lot of this legislation. Uh, in any case, this is as much time as we have for today. Uh, Yal, where can f people find out more of you on Twitter and also on uh, Consumer Choice Radio? Yeah, we're at consumerchoiceradio.com, also right there on your podcast uh, feed or app, whatever you might use. And uh, on the tweeters, I'm Y-A-L-Y-A-E-L-O-S-S. -S. Look forward to chatting there. Thanks so much, Bill. And follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. I've been uh, one of your hosts today, Bill Wirtz, uh, and I'll uh, see you on Thursday. You have to learn to